In 2017, many here on Earth received news of our solar system's first ever interstellar visitor, an oblong celestial rock somewhere between 300 to 3,000 feet long and somewhere between 100 and 600 feet thick. Astronomers called this mysterious object Oumuamua, a Hawaiian term meaning messenger from afar, arriving first. Oumuamua's visit inspired professional and amateur astronomers to search the skies for signs of more of these enigmatic guests from afar. And in late summer of 2019, the second known interstellar object had been found by an amateur astronomer by the name of Gennady Borisov in Crimea using a homemade telescope. Quote, Half a year ago, I made a new telescope, and with the help of it, I discovered this unique comet, Borisov says in a recent interview. I was excited about the comet, and of course, I was very surprised by the uniqueness. I would be glad if such an interesting space object gets my name, end quote. And it did get his name. C-2019-Q4 Borisov. One of the great mysteries about these objects is that simply by noting the steep irregularity of their trajectory and the incredible speed by which they enter our solar system, astronomers know these objects are not from our solar system. If these objects were let loose from a parent star, as some theories suggest, they would have had to travel for billions of years, tens of billions of years or more, to have made the journey to our solar system. But is that the real message with which these rocks greet us from afar? What are they saying? What does their message mean? Why would a few rocks from outside our solar system cause so much excitement? Perhaps it is because these celestial emissaries are bringing us messages of divine glory. The heavens and all they contain declare the inestimable value, the wonder, the awe, and the majestic imprint of a kingdom and a message not of this world. They declare the glory of God. As Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Are most of us really thinking about the heavens in this way? Do we fully comprehend the magnitude and awesomeness of God creating and sustaining the universe? As the writer of Hebrews puts it, let us not refuse what God is saying. There will come a time where God's voice will shake the very heavens. Quote, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from the heavens. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, 
Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. End quote. That passage comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. And the heavens are filled with consuming fires, an endless array of enormous suns. Our sun, for example, is 864,000 miles in diameter. But there are other stars much larger, infernos of celestial glory with diameters in the tens and hundreds of millions of miles. We can scarcely fathom it. And if we can begin to appreciate and understand God's glory not only as declared in the heavens, but as it is proclaimed on earth through the gospel, the how and when questions about the heavens, though fascinating in their own right, are put into proper perspective. On part two of our conversation with astronomer Dr. Danny Faulkner, we address some of the questions people gave us on Twitter. We talk a bit about interstellar objects and about the history and recent tragic demise of the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico. We hope our two-part episode will encourage you to see that the most important thing is not how or when God created the heavens and the earth, but that he created them for his glory in Christ Jesus, which he desires to share with all of us. Jesus is the messenger, the rock, the bright and morning star arriving first with the message of good news for all mankind. I wanted to maybe address some of the the chief uh, questions that people have for young earth cosmology. Now, I'm not asking that you have a solution to all of this, just what your thinking is. And you, you mentioned it. What is your present thinking on, um, on the time light time travel in light of a young earth cosmology? I've, uh, I've come to the conclusion that it's probably tied in with, with, the miracle of creation uh, you know many, many times wayne you've kind of alluded to this we we scientists these physics oriented people 
we want to find physical solutions to all sorts of things. And we seem to think the light travel time problem requires that as well. But um, there's a lot, there's, everything about the creation week was miraculous. You have light when no light existed before. You have matter and energy where none exist before. You have space where none existed before. You have living right. things existing that were non-living things that happened before. We see again and again and again mm -hmm. and again throughout the creation week, mm -hmm. there, there's stuff that just defies the way things work today. But suddenly when it comes to the light travel time problem, we, we say, no, Lord, you got to solve this one. This one's going to have to be done in a purely physical, natural way. And I, and I got the, again, this is one of those the things I began thinking about. This one, oh, a dozen years ago, probably. And, and I've wrestled with the light travel time problem for, for oh, 50 years, uh, but well, 40 years, 30, 35 years before that. Mm -hmm. I think many times we, we tend to think everything during the creation week was ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, and instantaneous. But we don't find much of that going on during the creation week. God made man to the dust of the ground. He made the land animals and the birds from the dust of the ground. He made on day three the plants to spring up out of the ground, and, and he made the fish uh, out of the waters. And we see very rapid, directed process going on here. And, and so could God have used the same sort of methodology on day four that he used on other days as well? I think God brought forth the light on, on day four. It was a miraculous thing. And, and people you know, try, to, try to say, well, here's the physical mechanism for that. And I say, well, wait a minute. You're, 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 again, you're going back to physics. You're going back to the way the world now works, not the way it worked during the miracle of creation, of creation week. So I, I think the, the, the light God sped up during that time, not in a naturalistic way, but in a supernatural sort of way. And then it transitioned over to the sustaining of the present world that the Colossians 1.16 talks about and Hebrews 1.3 talks about. God transitions over from this miracle of creation to the sustaining of the present world, upholding by the power of his word, which the, the, the rules that they follow, the decrees that they follow, what we would call physics today. So why would you impose this regime of today back onto the creation week? So I, I think it's just wrong-headed for us to look for a naturalistic explanation. That's the reason why I reject the, the relativistic explanations for this. I think, again, people are trying to use current-day science to explain the miracle of creation. and We would not do that for any other aspect of the creation week. Danny, I was just going to say, this is a good approach to scripture. And there are times when it's just not going to be, it's not going to work to bring in a scientific explanation when God was doing miracles. But there's been a whole significant list of different ideas proposed by young age creationists to deal with the starlight question, which I'm sure you're aware of a lot of those. And so this is a legitimate thing to, to throw out would it be accurate to say as analogous to what you're saying danny i think would be um something like the miracle at cana in john chapter two we don't go looking for physical explanations of how jesus made water in a matter of moments but you take the good wine to the head waiter and he says it's good wine he's going to think that this has been fermenting for years. I mean, that's just going to be his natural assumption 
if he asks the question, how did this wine get made? There's no technical explanation. I mean, nobody's looking for one. I've never heard any science done on how do you make wine so quickly, right? How did that wine get here that quickly? Is that an accurate, uh, something accurate, to, it, it, kind of what you're saying about in, in terms of creation in Starlight? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I think sometimes people use the marriage of, marriage of Cana as, uh, as as a argument for what we call mature creation. That's been you know, the most common um, explanation for light travel time problem. I, I don't like the word mature creation. What I suggest is matured creation. God rapidly brought it to mm. maturation. And that, that's the that's the way I would do it. But yeah, I think your analogy is good. Okay. Wayne, I've been chatting an awful lot, and I know you have a lot more good uh, technical questions that you could ask Dr. Faulkner. Uh, Dan, I was thinking about some of the Twitter questions. That, yeah. So one of them was about the moon receding from the Earth, and uh, that's kind of an interesting one. Um, Earth is spinning kind of rapidly, and the tidal bulge pulls on the moon and makes it proceed outward slowly. I, I've heard it's something like 3.8 centimeters a year um, or something like that, and that it recedes outward from the Earth. So the question is, would it eventually get far enough that it would uh, escape Earth's gravity? And But that's not really how it works, I don't think. It, it's The farther it recedes, the slower it recedes further. So it's slowing down as it does this, and it would reach a point where it would stop receding, um, where the Earth, so as the moon recedes, Earth's rotation slows a little. And if it went far enough, it would stop receding, and Earth would, uh, would be rotating slower. And I've heard that that would happen at around 47 days. That that the the time for the moon's orbit would be perfectly in sync with the Earth's rotation. So, without anything else interfering, I think it would eventually stop receding. My understanding was that uh, when it reached synchrony, the day and the month would be the same length. In yeah. forty-seven days, I haven't looked at it in a while. It could be two months. It's it's on the order of a couple of months, which is. 47 days is yeah um, i haven't worked it out exactly but and my my understanding was that after that they would expect the trend to reverse for a while that the uh, moon the earth's rotation would slow further and then the moon would spiral back in partly and won't come back all the way we're talking about long, long-term uh Title evolution, if, if I can use the word, the evil word there, E word, yeah. you could use it a couple different ways. But the development over time of the uh, of this would be a synchrony at some point, synchronous rotation, which the moon has already achieved, and the Earth would do that. But then I understand the thing, the thing would shrink back down again after that. Not that this the moon would collide with the Earth ever, but that it would it would come back in a bit. Um, but that's they would take billions of years yeah. for this to take place, and other factors certainly would come into play on this and it is a simple two-body interaction you're doing there with tides thrown in um i I don't think anyone's ever looked at this in terms of perturbation of other planets on the on the system or even the 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 sun's act on the system 
So I, I suspect these are crude estimates at best. Danny, this is kind of tangential, but there was some significant news in astronomy this week. The Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico has tragically collapsed. The video is dramatic. They had a drone up on one of the towers that was holding the cables. They were just doing some inspection with the drone. And the drone was focused right in on the cables on the tower, like maybe 50 feet away. And the cables, the cables start snapping on the video. It's amazing. And the cables snap and the tower goes back and forth. And you're like, whoa. Oh, wow. And then there was a ground cam, I guess just one of the regular cams that's on, where you see the whole center dish just fall and the wires snapping and the catwalk blasting apart and another tower falls. It's just like, wow. It's it's incredible. I mean, because that it, it really is amazing, tragically. Um, but I thought we could just briefly address this and and maybe have you just explain a little bit what's what is Arecibo and and, and what's some milestones from it and just just a little bit of background for some of our listeners that uh, may have heard about this and don't know much about it. I thought we could just briefly mention why it's significant in the field of astronomy. Well, for many years, Arecibo was the largest telescope in the world. It was like that for 50 years. Okay, it was radio rather than optical. That's what they kind of cheated on that front. Uh, Radio astronomy came along in the 30s. It didn't really develop and blossom until after the Second World War with advances in technology. I've never done any radio astronomy. I've always been optical. I used to tell people uh, I, I could never figure out where you put an eyepiece on a radio telescope. Uh, but at any rate, the, uh, uh, the, the the whole technique of radio astronomy is very different from the kind of work that I do, but it's very important. There are certain things we can learn from the radio part of the spectrum of, of certain objects you cannot learn any other way. And then there are certain objects out there that are just very radio noise noisy. They're giving off a lot of emission in the radio part of the spectrum. So it's a very important thing to study. Um, and the many of the telescope radio telescopes are big radio dishes. They were similar to the big satellite dishes you saw in proliferation in the late 70s everywhere in the early 80s. The United States built this one, uh, the Arecibo dish in a karst. It's in a, in a sinkhole in the top of a, of a mountain in Puerto Rico. It's a, uh, the, the dish, they took a natural, natural depression that had kind of a parabolic shape already. That way the, the dish didn't have to be very feet, very far off the ground as it were. And the dish was about uh, about a thousand feet across, I believe. It was a huge dish. Unfortunately, being built into a, into a landscape, you couldn't steer the thing. Uh, it was basically looking overhead, but you could sense the from the three three towers you had with cables. You could sense the receiver detector around a bit, so you could wait for things to rotate over, and you'd sit on for maybe two and a half hours max uh, as you sense this thing to to focus on it. So. Um, you couldn't see the entire sky, but there are a lot of really cool things in that part of the sky. You could you know, big swath all the way around. You could study. Uh, the thing went into operation in 1963, and the very next year they they did something remarkable. They they sent a very powerful radar pulse towards Mercury, and uh, that radar pulse penetrated the atmosphere, bounced off, and there was a Doppler shift from one side of the planet to the other. And from that, they're able to uh, they were able to figure mm-hmm. out what rotation period was. Mm-hmm. At the point, they thought it was 88 days, the same as the revolution period. They were surprised to find out it was like 56, 57 days, which turns out to be exactly two-thirds 
the orbital period. They still don't know why that happened. So that was a great feat in, uh, in solar system astronomy. They bounced the radar beams off of other uh, objects in the solar system to do similar sort of work. They were able to detect pulsars. Uh, these are incredible things. Um, they were able to confirm the, uh, the crab pulsar in the middle of the crab nebula. That was back in 1968, I think. And um, about five years later, a guy, a pair of people, uh, Taylor and Holtz, did the first uh, relativistic uh, loss uh, in, in some orbiting pulsars. Turns out it was the first indirect measurement of gravitational waves. We've now done it directly, but this was you know, decades earlier. Taylor and Holtz got a Nobel Prize for their work eventually. So there have been some Nobel Prize winning work associated with it. So to, you can't underestimate the contribution of this um, huge telescope. And of course, there's a lot of pop um, culture references to it. It was featured in some movies, Contact, Carl Sagan's book and movie. And then uh, I think GoldenEye, James Bond flick had it and a few other movies had it in there as well. Mm, yeah. Now, is it was it from Arecibo that... Uh... They sent that famous uh, Drake message, or Drake was part of that, along with Dr. Sagan. Like, yeah, they did. That was back in the 70s, I think it was. They they, they beamed it out towards uh, Globular Star Cluster, and it was a very powerful transmitter they put on it. So anybody out there in that beam path happened to be looking towards the Earth could have picked that signal up. Uh, a, I don't believe there are any ETs out there. B, uh, the chance of anybody looking is pretty slim. But hey, why not do this? It's kind of a fun thing to do. But yeah, they did actually beam a message into space from Arecibo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that background. I hope that gives our listeners uh, at least some uh, basic information about that historic telescope. Sadly, it's not going to be rebuilt. Um, but, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. The images really kind of shook me, if you will. It reminded me, seeing those towers fall and all of that stuff collapsing. I'm not kidding. I had this moment when I'm sitting there watching these things, and the scripture comes to mind of God saying, I think it's in Hebrews 12, Once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I thought about all the decades-long research that has come out of Arecibo and in generally the the modern uh, paradigm, the, the modern construct of, of modern cosmology, that um, recently Sean Carroll said it was in an essay I think in one of the compendiums I have on science and Christianity. Uh, Doctor Sean Carroll, who's a cosmologist, he's he's a, uh, he doesn't identify as an atheist, but he's certainly not a Christian or a theist or anything. But he he has mentions in this paper, I think it's in the Blackwell Companion, that that God is never mentioned in the scientific cosmological research and papers and things. And, and as I'm watching Arecibo collapse, I'm just thinking to myself of, of God being a, a jealous God. I'm, I'm not saying that God's judging the Arecibo telescope. I'm, I'm saying it, it reminds me of what we were just talking about. I get the chills that, that really God is the reason for this universe. And there will come a time where he's going to shake the heavens again and remind everybody that these are his heavens, that he is the Lord and that he is coming back and that he will split the heavens. The heavens will roll up like a scroll, whatever that's going to look like. The stars are going to fall from the sky. There will be signs in the heavens uh, that will precede his return. And one of the things, Danny, that I appreciate about what you're doing is, as you said at the beginning of our, of our conversation, there, there are very few lay people that, that take really a vested interest in astronomy to the extent that people take in, say, biology. Everybody seems to know something about natural selection and evolution. 
Um, but astronomy seems to be, and even when I talk to lay people on Twitter, which I, I, I love talking to people about, we wrote our book, Story of the Cosmos, for lay people. And even when I'm talking to lay people about the universe, it's like, oh, yeah, the stars are pretty. Isn't that nice? And, and, but, but nobody has any, any uh, and I'm not knocking people. It's just like the, the, the knowledge of, of the universe is just, it seems exponentially so small compared to how the universe, how big it is. It's like we don't even know it's there. We don't even see it. We can't see the stars. We're in the cities where we can't see anything. It just seems to be out of people's minds entirely. I remember giving a Sunday school presentation to a small group uh, just before our book came out uh, last year. And I'm, I'm two minutes into it, and a lady stops me, and she says, what's a galaxy? And I, I you know, I'm like, okay, wow. You know, that's, but but I, I, like you, Danny, I'm running into this, and I have been with this book for the last couple of years, and that's why we're doing this podcast. Uh, Wayne and I have been doing this for three years. Um, I don't think either of us thought it was going to last that long. <laughs> but uh, we we want to bring this conversation to more people because as I'm engaging non-believers— all the time in my ministry of watchmen, that the thing that comes up all the time is science and sometimes cosmology or natural selection. But I think if Christians can get an upper hand in having an intelligent conversation with non-believers about the universe, that that I find that this can make some 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 more inroads. So Danny, I appreciate your efforts and what you're doing because there are a few people like you out there doing these kinds of things. Um, and, and making that kind of impact. So thank you for that. Do you see, uh, can you explain a little bit about why, maybe why the lack of interest in this particular science versus the other ones? <laughs> I, uh, it baffles me. I mean, to me, I'm biased, of course, but astronomy is just a fascinating subject. Uh, if you see photographs in space, you look through a telescope at, say, Saturn, uh, I, I can't fathom why people are not blown away with all of that. The wonder, the beauty, the size, the immensity. Um, it, it's, it's, it's probably the artsiest of all the sciences in that respect. And it speaks to the big questions in life, where we came from, where we're going, why we're here, how do we fit into things, more so than other, other sciences too. Um, it, but it, it's not considered important by so many people. You know, you mentioned about the ignorance of people when it comes to astronomy, basic things. The only time I ever studied astronomy in school growing up was in sixth grade. We, uh, we did a unit on, on astronomy. I was in an accelerated class that year and we, we finished the textbooks, whereas we did in other years. And so if I hadn't studied on, on, uh, on astronomy on my own, my understanding of astronomy would be sixth grade level. Uh, so, so yeah, the ignorance of astronomy is, is rampant out there. And, you know, when I was teaching at the university uh, all those years, I had several things that I, that I wanted my students to get right. Uh, there are several things, basic things about astronomy that most people don't get. You know, there are many people who think the phases of the moon are caused by the Earth's shadow falling on the moon. I mean, that's that when I first heard that misconception, I couldn't believe it, but it's turned out probably the majority of people think it's the shadow of the earth and the moon that causes phases. Uh, most people don't understand what causes the seasons. They think they do, but they don't. They think it's the distant changing distance of the of the earth from the sun, and that's not it at all. It's something very different from that. So I, I find misconceptions of astronomy and ignorance of astronomy to be appallingly bad out there. Mm. 
you know, Psalm, you know, Psalm 19 really clearly calls our attention to, to the fact that there is a creator. And yet people reject that truth all the time because they're, you know, the, the, that, that realization has consequences. If you come to realize that we're, we're not the product of chance in a long time, but that someone has made us, then that creator can have a claim upon our lives. And that then compels us to respond a certain way. A lot of causes to desire to, to, to learn more about him and find out why, why he did made us, why we're here, those kind of questions. So the, the real spiritual warfare comes in tamping down those kind of expectations. Okay. All right. Wayne, you had something? Uh, well, I, I was just kind of thinking about some of those Twitter questions some more. And one of them was about an uh, kind of mysterious object called 2i Borisov. <laughs> so this was uh, an object that is because it's coming at high speed, passes through our solar system and kind of does kind of a flyby of our sun. Uh, we know from its its motion that it was coming from outside the solar system. And there was another object like this uh, some time ago called Oumuamua. And Dan, you remember we did a podcast about Oumuamua. Yes, that was fun. I wrote an article about it. Um, so <clears throat> the question was kind of about, uh, do we have a travel time problem with, with believing in a young age? for something like Borisov. And I would look at it uh, like Oumuamua, where I found that when they when they took the motion of Oumuamua near our sun, okay, and they project back to where it was and how it was moving before it was uh, uh, deflected by our sun, its motion was kind of uh, just moving along with the galaxy. It wasn't far from the plane of the galaxy, and it was, uh, they can't, you know, they wanted to project back to figure out which star did it come from. But actually, you don't know that it came from a star. We, we There's a tendency in astronomy a lot to assume a history that we can't be sure about sometimes. And uh, so I would, I would look at Oumuamua as something that was just out there probably created when the galaxy was created and it was just drifting along until it came close enough to our sun to be deflected by it and the problem with an age issue comes in if you if you say it had to cross space and come from another star when we don't actually know that we don't know that it crossed space from another star we just know it was out there the, but both of them had hyperbolic paths Yes. The the uh, any 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 bound object, gravitationally bound orbiting object to the soul to the solar system is going to have an elliptical orbit. If it's right on the edge of being connected or not connected to the solar system, it would be parabolic. If it's moving faster than than being connected, then it's hyperbolic. And until these two objects came along, we had never seen an incoming hyperbolic trajectory on an object. We'd seen a number of ones leaving the solar system on, on hyperbolic paths because it come in close proximity, say, to a, one of the major planets, which kicked enough energy into it to kick it out of the solar system. Um, 
and presumably the whole thing is that such objects only form around stars. And so if the earth, if the sun is kicking these objects out regularly, then other stars should be doing the same thing and the other planetary systems. And so there's a probability low as it may be that eventually one would come by. So when, uh, was it one, uh, Amuamua came by, that was, that made big news. The second one wasn't quite as big news. By the way, Amuamua had, had a longer, it was about 10 times longer than it was wide, which is an odd shape. It's kind of a needle shape, similar to a, uh, say a cruiser or a, or a, a destroyer. Some of the spacecraft you see on, on sci-fi shows. Yeah, you, like, can, you can see videos on YouTube where it looks like a spaceship. Oh, yeah. I, I saw, <laughs> first thing I thought of, then, then a few days later I saw those, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's thinking that direction. I kept thinking of the Botany Bay, an incident on the original Star Trek series from 1960. <laughs> it's a big, long spacecraft. Saying, <laughs> there have been people who, tongue-in-cheek, but some people seriously suggested that this was a, was a derelict spacecraft going by interesting uh sort of sort of things in all of this but um but you're absolutely correct wayne the point is people assume that these things came from other stars and there's no evidence of that at all um and and so consequently this thing um easily could have been created i think i think the argument some people want to make here is the fact that okay if this thing came from another star then how long did it take to get here and it's going to take an awful lot longer than a few thousands of years for creation, probably millions of years to get here. So right. does it disprove creation? Again, if you could definitively know that it came from another star, then that would be a problem. But we don't know that. And people will say, well, wait a minute, it, it's what's it doing out there? Well, God made it that way. Well, it's never even completed an orbit. That's correct. It, it hasn't. But just follow that reasoning forward a little bit. Uh, suppose that God, even if you don't agree with this, uh, suppose that God created the earth and orbiting around the sun during the creation week. It takes a year for the earth, sun to, uh, the earth to complete one orbit. Well, that's the case, then God, God somehow couldn't have, this disproves God created it because it hasn't spent a year until a year after creation. Uh, or even go to something today, it takes 90 minutes minimum for a, uh, a, for a satellite in low earth orbit to orbit the earth. We can inject something into orbit far shorter time scale than that and so if you were to look at a a satellite say 50 minutes after its launch you may you may think well this is impossible it couldn't have been launched 50 minutes ago because it wouldn't have completed one orbit yet well that's the whole point we created it in that orbit pretty quickly and just because it hasn't completed one orbit yet doesn't mean that it that it can't or it, it won't or that it necessarily had to have been there for at least one orbit. Everybody realizes right. it's one orbit to finally get to an orbit. So this argument that, that this necessarily disproves recent creation or God creating things is, is really a specious argument. Right. So NASA had done experiments where they put some object up into orbit temporarily, and it was in an orbit that would have whatever orbital period, but they didn't, they didn't mean for it to be there for very long. It was a short experiment and then it was over and it came back down. Um, so things like this could happen. Uh, I just think it's important to question assumptions and uh, the naturalistic assumption that l leaves out the possibility of 
God creating is is something we need to always work at questioning in the right way. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going crazy and suggesting uh, a young age creation view, but we're we're looking at things in a different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a wonderful chat. We could go. I could go on forever and ever and ever. Um, we hardly talked about your book, Danny. Um, I want to leave you with a few minutes of, of being able to uh, maybe just, uh, I think you, you'd shared at the beginning what the intent was of, of this book. And uh, maybe you could just share briefly um, the aim of what you're saying in this book in general. I mean, I know there's there's a lot of great information here. I know it's hard to sum it up in a few minutes, but uh, but what what what's the ultimate thesis of The Expanse of Heaven? Um, it's the subtitle is where creation and astronomy intersect. And so it's, it would, would it be unfair to say, or would it be fair to say that, uh, if somebody would read this and they say, well, that's a young earth creation book. I mean, I've read it and I think it's just an excellent, an excellent primer on ast- astronomy science. If you don't know anything about it, this is a great book for that. Would you say, I mean, for this is, this is a great book for lay people that want to get interested in in the science of cosmology or the science of astronomy. And, um, and it's, 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 it's biblical. It's sound. It's, it's, it's good science. And I think, uh, if you're going to engage the topic, this is a book where you'd want to, where you'd want to begin, because as you say, Danny, there's, you know, you go all the way back to E.W. Maunder from the first half of the 20th century. And, and like you, when I did the research for our story of the cosmos, I found that there was a, a dearth of, of really good biblical scientific creation, ideas about astronomy that's one of the reasons why we wrote story of the cosmos was to get people thinking about this again um but just any kind of concluding thoughts that you have about uh christianity and astronomy and the field of astronomy and science and and uh and what you do at aig or anything like that well i think i think you did it did encapsulate what the intent of the book is i wanted to share the wonder of astronomy with people you know there are plenty of books about astronomy out there, and most of them give you a secular approach, a very evolutionary approach. So why not have one that that gives a different approach to things, just a different view on things? And I do share much information that even the most ardent evolutionist wouldn't disagree with. I mean, <laughs> there's certain that, that's mm-hmm. the big thing about about science. We, we're sometimes accused we creationists of being anti-science somehow. But it turns out we, we agree on, on far more than we disagree. But it comes down to the, the nature of the world as it now exists. We can study the planets, the stars, the galaxies. We can agree on every bit of that. The, the, the problem we have is when we start talking about, well, where did these things come from and what were they like, say, a million years ago? Those kind of questions. Um, we might not disagree with all of those answers, by the way, or the speculations that happened, but that is, that's a relatively small part of all of this. So I, I think you're right. There's a lot of, of good science involved in that. And uh, if I can dissuade mm-hmm. the, the notion that we are against science, that I think that while I didn't write the book for non-believers, if they can at least get that, then I would be satisfied with that. Yes, I think you've presented, I mean, like I said, I am uh, I, I'm very impressed with the, just the basic good science that you present in this book and now i'm so totally eager to 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 talk about uh, or to read the the created cosmos and if you have uh some time wayne and i will have you back and we can talk about your first book uh or we can say we're going to talk about your first book <laughs> and then talk about something else maybe could, um, could i mention but, a couple of go, other go ahead a couple of other book projects i have going on right now 
absolutely plug away to your heart's content. Uh, one of them is a uh, high school astronomy textbook. It's uh, uh, meant as a four-year course, uh, sort of an alternative to having usually in high school you take like physical science and biology and then maybe chemistry and physics but those are more very quantitative sort of thing not for everybody but many states require three and four years Mm -hmm. of science now for college admission so this would offer you a third year uh, offered at a level commensurate with the other two sciences i just mentioned and um, it's a it's a again a whole year course dealing with with astronomy from a creationary standpoint i actually uh wrote the first draft of this years ago. I taught, uh, volunteer taught at a Christian school back in South Carolina where I lived and, and taught through this book uh, three times. And I had uh, some people, actually some homeschoolers use it, but now I have a publisher who's making it pretty and, and, and dolling it up for me. That's Master Books, which does much of our, our publication. Uh, and then the uh, other book I'm working on uh-huh. is uh, a book of uh, photographs of, of, uh, of astronomical bodies. I don't know if you're familiar with um, with Tom Vale's book, Grand Canyon, A Different View. You have these stunning photographs of Grand Canyon with different essays that he and other people wrote about Grand Canyon. It's a beautiful coffee table book. And then my colleague down the hallway at AIG, uh, George Purdom, went to the Galapagos Islands um, a few years ago, and she took a bunch of photos and had, again, essays with beautiful pictures. Now, you know, Grand Canyon is, is the big evolutionary thing that people want to talk about with respect to geology. And then the Galapagos Mm -hmm. is a big thing they want to talk about with respect to evolutionary biology. So uh, I've worked on this book and my working title is the heavens, a different view Uh, now doing for Mm. the other two have done for geology and biology. I got into astrophotography about five years ago. I didn't bother with that until recent years. And I've come across a couple of other amateur astronomers who are creationists, big supporters of Answers in Genesis, and they take some stunning photographs. So I have over 100 photographs that I've put together made made by creationists, and I hope that book will come out next year. Okay, well, that's exciting because who doesn't want an astronomy coffee table book? I mean, I have like seven or eight of them. (laughs) My favorite coffee table astronomy book in my possession is, I cherish it, it is uh, a Hubble a big Hubble book, and uh, if I put legs under it, it could be a table unto itself. But I had Dr. Anton Kokomoer, who worked at Hubble, or still does, uh, who was primarily responsible, the chief imager who processed the deep field and ultra-extreme deep field images for Hubble. He was the uh, project supervisor that helped process those images. And so Anton came to Texas two years ago to speak um, and that's where the story of the cosmos came from. And so while I had him, I had my Hubble book and I had him sign the image in the book. So I'm like, this is so cool. This is like, uh, <laughs> it was really neat. So maybe Danny, if we can stay in touch, uh, I would love to have uh, a signed copy of, of the book when it comes out and we can have you back to promote that as well. you you have a, a, a key to our city here at good heavens, Danny, anytime, um, we would love to have you back on and, and, and talk to you for hours and hours about astronomy. You can be our resident Good Heavens astronomer. And if, if we ever became rich and famous, we could pay you an honorarium. Let's, let's tell Danny about the recent uh, telescope session we did out in West Texas. Oh, yes. Yeah, Wayne and I, uh, I, I have a 10-inch Dobsonian. I would love to get into astrophotography, but I just don't have the money right now. And a Dob is not really a good 
photography telescope anyway. But anyway, we took my can out there uh, to, we drove two hours from where I live into this little remote man-made lake called Lake Benjamin in Benjamin, Texas. There's like a rabbit and there's like some deer and I think one person that runs a gas station uh, out there. And there's $20 beef jerky in Benjamin, isn't there, Wayne? One of the darkest areas in North America in this little uh, corner of Texas. And it was beautiful. Yeah, it's it's starting to get into West Texas. Yeah. And uh, we went out. Uh, a couple of nights ago and uh it's a four-hour drive round trip but the stars are just hanging like fruit hanging off a tree it's just beautiful so uh we but the atmosphere there's no pollution there's no cities uh there's just so so you're dealing yeah you have at the at the horizon you have the the sort of atmospheric problems of the cities that are farther away but um elevation would be nicer if we were a little bit higher but but as you drive out west texas your elevation is actually higher so i think we might actually be at a thousand twelve hundred feet maybe by the time we're out there i'd have to look it up um but beautiful night sky the place i've been going to in recent last two or three years is a place in eastern arizona at 8300 feet oh we're jealous <laughs> jealous <laughs> jealous i've got some stunning photos there <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah, because the higher in elevation we would be, the better off we would see that. Mm. Well, gosh, I, I, I hate to hang up. Wayne, any, any closing thoughts for the good doctor? Well, Danny and I have both uh, done some writing about creation, and I've kind of focused on the solar system and planetary topics. And he's dealt with other topics, but I, I would encourage anyone also to go to the Answers in Genesis uh, website, answersingenesis.org, and there's a online technical journal called answers research journal and there's a lot of really good papers by danny there uh, that i encourage anybody to to download and danny just briefly where where would people where would be the best place to go for people to find out more about your writing and research and what you do at aig as wayne suggested the answers in genesis website it's answers org, and uh not only do I have the ARJ there, that I also have a blog there. I have articles I write from time to time. I've got a couple coming up later this month. So uh, uh, they can they just search for anything. It's, it's very searchable. So, so it's a good place to go and, and look for things that I've, I've written about. Okay. And uh, your ministry is primarily at AIG. And where can people go? Can AIG, is there a donation spot on the website if people want to go and donate? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so we, if you're interested in supporting the ministry of AIG, you can go to the AIG website and and, uh, and donate if you'd like. Um, so thank you again, Danny, and we will be uh, in touch and talk about your next book next time. What does Scripture mean when it says the heavens declare the glory of God? Wayne and Dan have been discussing issues concerning the cosmos, creation, and Christ since 2017. Everything from strange stars, weird moons, to oddball galaxies, how can a biblical perspective of the universe fit within the paradigms of modern science? How can a deeper understanding of the universe strengthen and encourage your faith? Find out by putting Good Heavens in your podcast subscription list today. For more information on Good Heavens or any other resources on Christian apologetics, world religions, and cults, be sure to visit Watchman.org today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.